0: All right, and welcome to Fast Break Breakfast NBA Podcast. My name is Keith, here alone for a solo interview episode. And this interview is one I was probably the most excited about and anxious about. That's with NBA referee, former NBA referee, Monty McCutcheon. I did a lot of research. I wrote down... Tons of questions. We didn't get to hardly any of them, but that's okay. This is a extremely nerdy episode uh, as we talk about refereeing and mechanics and the public perception of refs and things like that. Uh, spoiler, I did not mention to him that I had a brief refereeing career at the high school and middle school level, so hopefully Chuck and John will be proud that I didn't say anything like, that's just like the time I didn't know if the ball went in the basket. Refing a game in front of 100 people or so. Uh, As far as context for the interview, I think most of our listeners know that I am normally on the side of the referees. Obviously, as a passionate NBA fan, I get mad at the refs a lot and they screw up a lot of things. But I just think they do such a great job with the challenge presented to them with these players who can do all kinds of incredible feats. And again, I'm in the minority I know of my empathy towards refs. I think people who haven't refed basketball on any level, you just don't have the concept of what it's like to do this from floor, floor level without an elevated television camera angle and just the amount they get right. It, it, it's, pretty, it's pretty incredible. Just basic stuff like out-of-bounds calls. That's amazing. So like, if you're a person who thinks NBA refing is broken or terrible, You might not enjoy this interview. You might be too biased uh, to enjoy uh, much of it. Or you might be Jeff Van Gundy. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for listening. But it's a fun interview for me. Hopefully you will get as much enjoyment from it as I got doing it. I think you'll hear uh, in his answers, one, how passionate he is and how much he loves doing it and how hard all of the referees work to, to get to a level of excellence. Knowing perfection is not attainable. So, again, we, we talk about a lot of stuff. We, we talk about the pump fakes and fouls on guys flying through the air and the confusion over those about what is a continuation foul on jump shots. Uh, he talks about what he did right after game seven of Warriors Cavs. I pitch him some rule changes and wait for it. He hints that I might be onto something with one of them. And one of them, he thought, uh, we might see some changes in the upcoming season. So, if you are a true NBA junkie, I think you will have a good time listening to this episode. It's a little longer. Again, it was very nice of him to sit down for a long time with the phone call. Um, so, NBA junkies, this one's for you. Also, if you're an NBA junkie, you should probably head over to patreon.com slash fastbreakbreakfast to support us there and get some of that exclusive bonus content. We've been putting up... uh, There was a bonus episode from Chuck but he lost his phone in Denver. I just had the Dippin' Dot cereal review was put up. So if you want more content like that, more Fast Break Breakfast in the off-season, you get all that at patreon.com slash Fast Break Breakfast. It also is the best way to support this show to justify the time that goes into researching an nba official for many hours uh it's fun but also making money makes it a little more feasible to keep doing it at this level so if you want to help us out patreon.com slash fast break breakfast my guest today was an nba official who refed in 169 playoff games and is currently the Vice President of Referee Development and Training for the NBA, and he's a first-time guest on Fast Break Breakfast, Monty McCutcheon. Monty, how are you?
1: I'm doing fine. How are you today?
0: I'm doing great. That that 169 playoff games, that's according to Wikipedia. I, I don't know if you know if that's a, the veracity of that. <laughs>
1: well, Whoever filled that out, I'm thankful for. I never did much care for uh, sort of counting those numbers up. I I enjoyed all of those games and, you know, worked really diligently at sort of serving the game in a way that that felt good to to be trusted, uh, entrusted by the league to to represent the league at the highest and best time of our season. And so uh, I am proud of the games I worked uh, on, on the league's behalf, most certainly.
0: That's a very statesmanlike thing to uh, to say, which is good. So I'm going to try to get you to to be a little more candid, uh, a little bit of a refresher. And for our listeners, I ran into you on a shuttle bus going from the Las Vegas airport to the rental car center, and I was staring at you, thinking, "I'm pretty sure that's Monty McCutcheon." Uh, you were just trying to, you know, not stare at anyone as you were on your uh, a business trip, and. Uh, you know, as an NBA nerd fan, I was like, that's him. But I've actually never stared this intently at him. So I, I Googled your photo and be like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's him. I'm not going to bother him. <laughs> uh, and so I-, I just approached and said, hi, or, you know, are you Monty McCutcheon? And then you said yes, and you seemed happy to talk. And, w- and we talked about the NBA for the rest of-, of the ride. And it was one of the highlights, actually, of my trip. It was like the, the first moments in Las Vegas. It was a highlight because you spoke so candidly. And, you know, we were talking about, you know, some of the playoff games. That was 2016 when there was a a big, I think there was a a last two minute report that said the refs missed five calls in the last 13 seconds of a Thunder Spurs game. And I was like, Monty, I disagree. I thought that game was beautiful. That was my favorite ending to a game of a season. Well, that's the reason
1: I talk so much with you, Keith, (laughs) is that you thought refereeing was beautiful. So (laughs) anyone who thinks our job is done beautifully, I'm drawn to.
0: Well, I, I, you know, perfection, and I've heard you say this, it's not perfection, it's excellence. And again, that that scramble that ended that Thunder Spurs game, outside of a game-winning buzzer beater, I was like, that's one of the finest endings we've had. But anyway, on that shuttle bus, I was telling you, like, you guys, the NBA referees need to get out there more and talk to the media cuz I was like I feel like if people could hear you talk, like they wouldn't be as angry at referees. It'd be fun and you were like, "Yeah, you know, we don't we don't do a lot of media." But then I ran into you this last summer or you know a couple months ago while you were eating some nachos and I interrupted you again and you remembered our conversation and I was like, "Are you are, are you available to come on the podcast?" And you're like, "Yes, I am. I am now available to come on podcast." So all that set up to be like, thank you for coming, and I hope that we will get you to uh, metaphorically let your hair down and, and talk candidly uh, about the game that you do, you love, and you try to serve.
1: Well, I, you know, I, you you brought up some good points. I think that um, the the most interesting thing about media and referees is is that the that because of social media in particular, I, I think that that our league is rightfully concerned without proper training, our players and our coaches of course get plenty of training uh, on media relationships so far referees have not been provided that training up to now and i think you know in terms of how things go viral and everything else we want to make sure that our referees have been ha- have been properly versed in not only how to be honest with with questions as as you have said here about being candid but also a- about an awareness of of how important most of our referees view themselves as as sort of anonymous people who are doing the jobs that they love and are are excited to be a part of on a nightly basis, but they don't view themselves in a historical context, you know, and, and yet we've all chosen to live historically. And when you enter into history, you need to be well trained for understanding that your words have impact that it's not just Monty McCutcheon speaking, but it's Monty McCutcheon NBA referee speaking. And in some ways uh, that person then becomes an ambassador for the people he works for. And and more importantly, for the NBA, being the worldwide leader in basketball, you then become a spokesperson for for basketball in general in that way. And we wanna make sure that our people are are ready for that so that they can represent the league that they love so much properly. And, um, uh, of course, since I've taken this job, there's been new opportunities to get received that kind of training and you know, these, these podcasts that you and I are doing today, are an exciting way for us to share with the the world at large the good work that we believe we're doing. Um, That it's a trained work. That it's a a trained craft. That people put time and energy and hours upon hours at learning how to get better at it. Contrary to, to what any specific fan base may think, our referees are professionals. They have professed publicly that this matters to them which is the history of that word professional. And I think that If we can share the fact that our referees care about this deeply, we have a better opportunity of being received for that excellent standard as opposed to perfection. Um, Being a professional doesn't mean you don't make mistakes, of course. Um, As I've said in other venues, I can fill books up with the amount of mistakes I made. I also worked really hard to be excellent at my craft, as do the rest of our staff. And I think that that's the part we would like to start to highlight, is that our staff in particular really gets after tape work, they really get after their rules, they really get after taking care of their body on any given night when they're working four games in five nights and it's the fourth game in that stretch, that they've gotten the proper rest and that they care enough about the game that they're going to be ready to to do their role to play their part in that game. And I think that's often misconstrued by the public at large as though we just show up and randomly make capricious decisions that impact other people's lives. And that's just simply not the case.
0: What is the routine? Walk me through the routine. And again, this is like the minutia of refereeing that I might be more interested in than, than the audience, but what is the, what's the daily weekly routine of referees during the season?
1: Well, I think the, the important thing to remember is, is that referees, NBA referees, don't get 41 home games. If you're lucky enough to live in uh, an NBA city, then you're likely to get two or three at the top, two or three assignments in that city for the entire year. And so we travel. We travel a lot. Uh, anywhere from 22 to probably 26 days a month, an NBA referee is on the road. We have to be in the city the night before the game if we do not have a game the night before. If we do have a game the night before, then we um, have to fly out first flight in the morning, commercial, of course, and we go fly in, uh, get to the uh, city. We have a pregame meeting every day. If you've got a back-to-back, you were probably up at 2 a.m. the night before finishing up game reports, and if you were on that first flight at 6 a.m., that probably meant you left the hotel at 4 or 4.30. And so there's a routine of of difficult travel that NBA referees have to be good at self-managing they must be ready for the game. And so, you know, we're like kindergartners in one way. We, we make sure we get our nap every afternoon, <laughs> you know, we, we make sure we prepare and if we have little tweaks in our hamstrings, we make sure we get the proper treatment and the proper stretching and, and the proper rehab that needs to take place to, to be prepared to continue on. I don't think people realize how hard NBA referees get work to get to games to make sure that their assignments are completed through difficult travel, rain, canceled flights, driving two hours to this airport to then catch a different flight because one's going. That takes place behind the scenes every year. And our staff works incredibly hard to not impact the game negatively by you know, taking the easy way out not to get to a game or impacting the rest of the staff who would then have to cover for that. Um, lack of effort and our, our staff does a great job of getting to games and being prepared to work. As I said earlier, we have a morning meeting every day that discusses, um, you know, the, the peculiarities of that particular game. Um, you know, we might discuss that, that a team's been out for 10 days and that they're they they they're tired and that we should, you know, have some empathy uh, while still upholding our standards, you know, for performance on any given night. Uh, we might talk about, um, you know, certain matchups if there was a, a difficult meeting the last time they played. The the balance there, Keith, is to make sure that we understand that being well-informed can't drift into making anticipatory decisions. To have good information makes you a better referee. To be well-disciplined with that information makes you a better referee. And I don't think that most people understand how disciplined a craft our refereeing staff is. We work as a team. We have areas that are dictated by the ball that inform our mechanic system in which we know where to stand, where and what to look for, and when to look for it. Based on where the ball is and so at any given 24 second time frame an NBA possession, we might be on ball off ball three, four, five, six different times as the ball swings around. And as an NBA referee, you must trust that your partner is doing their work according to those mechanics system so that you can do your work. NBA referees that try to see the whole game like they're watching television are very poor at their work, and we luckily don't have those kinds of referees. We usually vet them out before they get here. That discipline of knowing that this is my third to be responsible for at any given time, knowing how quickly it can change is what makes us an excellent team. It's not just individual referees out there randomly deciding what they're going to do. And when we're not disciplined on any given night, that's when we have issues that we end up having to, to work through, um, you know, post-game via video work, via talking with me or other members of our management team. But when we are well-disciplined and we are all working our portion of the game, we serve the game the best. We become the third team on any given contest.
0: I want to return to that talk about the mechanics and the areas of focus or responsibility for each referee. But talking about that schedule, that daily schedule, one of our gimmicks True. on our show is just to talk about breakfast every day. So, between those meetings, between those early uh like wake-up calls, are, are what's your what was your go-to breakfast when you were out on the road? Like were you squeezing those in at the airport? Like was there time to you have to bring it to the meeting? Uh what were you eating for breakfast when you were out on the road? Our
1: morning meeting is usually around 11:30 post breakfast. And so okay. if you're in the city if you're in the city the night before Often, you know, NBA referees are creatures of habit and routine, which is what helps them get to the place of good work. And so different referees have different routines. Most of our referees would meet in the morning informally, not the morning meeting per se, in the concierge lounges of of Marriott properties, you know, which is where predominantly referees stay. And and you would you would enjoy and that time frame would be a little less professional and much more, you know, colloquial in the sense that you're asking about about families and you're asking about outside interest and how things are at home, your children and your wives. And that's usually done over a concierge lounge. So, you know, a healthy dose of of scrambled eggs and continental breakfast. My go-to was uh, two hard-boiled eggs, uh, yolks removed and some kind of of fruit that would go along with it. That was, that was my go-to breakfast. We get NBA referees get weighed in three times a year. Uh, as part of a collectively bargained uh, agreement, you know, in terms of staying fit. And so most NBA referees will incorporate a workout into their day. Some do it in the afternoon, some do it in the morning. Uh, But every NBA referee is constantly maintaining a fitness that is both required contractually, but also just required to do good work. Um, You know, we have to be able to, to stay up with Obviously, I'm biased, of course, but the best athletes in the world, in my opinion, and to do so at more advanced ages than those athletes are takes a a commitment and and a devotion to To that, and of course, food, breakfast included, uh, plays a central role. As you age, you, as you well may know, I most certainly know this. But that as I age, I can't work out my my dietary choices, and so <laughs> I used to be able to just outwork them, but I can't outwork them anymore. And so, you know, that discipline even then enters into that side of our profession. And um, our our referees are good about maintaining good discipline with their meals, breakfast included.
0: Uh, that's funny. I, I did, that's interesting about the, about the referee weigh in. I, I was noticing it. It feels like referees are as fit as they've ever been in league history. You you look sure. at them now, and you're all like, these guys are all. You can tell they're they're workout warriors, or their uh I didn't know how much of that right. requirement. I was curious what the requirement was. I also know you guys typically have some probably rules about about grooming, uh, like your hair. Because I think again, everyone it's fairly conservative looks. I did notice though, Moni, yeah. your your sideburns got a little out of control a couple times. I wonder if you were ever told to <laughs> to to rein back in your sideburns. No, I,
1: I never was told anything about my sideburns. I do have. You know a certain likeness uh, for those people that will wear sideburns, and I would drop them down every now and then, and then (laughs) raise them up in different levels of of exploratory fun for myself. Uh, You know, vanilla makes an all right ice cream flavor. It's not that great of a lifestyle (laughs) to achieve. So you know, I mean, uh, sideburns are a, a small little. Claiming of that, that fun and, and uh, enjoyment. Uh, you know, in all seriousness about the conservativeness, you know, our fans are so passionate and it's wonderful, but you don't want to give them extra fodder to, to be taking shots at you. They have plenty of ammunition based on the work and the perception of the work that to be coming out there with, you know, four-inch long goatees is probably not in our best interest. Uh, so most of us do take on more of a conservative look out there. And My one little uh, rebellious streak was to drop my my sideburns down a quarter of an inch uh, longer than they probably should have been. So I'm guilty as charged. Yeah, th-
0: there was a Christmas Day. I-, I just saw it a couple days ago <laughs> and knew I was speaking with you this coming week. There was a Christmas Day game. It was the Co- I think it was Kobe and Shaq meeting against each other for the first time. Lakers Heat and your sideburns were pretty long, and I was like, whoa. I don't, I, don't, I don't remember them dropping that. I was that much far.
1: younger then, <laughs> so I, I'm sure I'm guilty as charged. Videotape usually doesn't lie when it comes to NBA referees, whether that's about a play or the length of our sideburns.
0: Well, that's a that's a great segue into that videotape not lying. So, so <laughs> your, your new your new job, it, it, it seems like it's a couple twofold. One, you, you know, you're in charge of, of training the referees, but it also seems like you've been given this task of repairing relationships that maybe we're getting frayed or trying to improve the the quality of communication between the NBA players and the referees and I guess all wrapped into that is we have this public perception of referees that I want to talk about extensively Um, and a lot of that is the last two minute reports where people looking at these videos and being able to I don't know concretely say oh yeah that is that's a missed call and and having to deal with that so all that stuff talking about first of all how is the how is it going with you trying to repair this relationship or meeting with the teams individually to try to improve um i guess the communication and the respect between referees and players
1: I think that the, Michelle Johnson and Sharif Abdul-Rahim, uh, Michelle Johnson is my boss, senior vice president of, of referee operations, and um, Sharif, a longtime NBA player, um, renaissance man in his own right in terms of the many of the things that he pursues in life. That are really meaningful, and we all went around and and met with the teams, uh, every team uh, from All Star break, give or take a few days, to the end of the season, give or take a few days, and I don't know if repair, and, and it's fine that you use that word. I think it, it's a little strong of a word. I think that that the NBA tug and flow of what has exploded upon us, Keith. I think that we don't remember that there most of the NBA's history was done without social media. And yet the last decade, um, you know, Charlie Villanueva was the first person to tweet at, at halftime of a game, and we didn't right. even have a policy in place. And he called it a twit at the time. That's how little it you know it had taken off at that time. And um you know, I would have thought that the way social media feels now—that that would have been fifteen, twenty years ago—but it wasn't. It was '09, and that's less than a decade that we've we've been involved with social media. And I think that players, uh, that being younger than most of us, uh, a significant portion of their lives has been about growing up under that auspices of, of social media. And so it's much more familiar to them. That being said, the scrutiny that they live in under is not the same as a player in the mid-90s to the early 2000s. Every single person they run across is a reporter that has a phone, you know. And I think that, that that's, to some degree, made all of us, and the scrutiny of the NBA, and the popularity of the NBA, has made us all ever so slightly get a little more on edge. And as such, I think it's important to remind all of us, ourselves included on the NBA refereeing side of things, that the game is what is beautiful. The game is what has drawn us all to meet at this sort of cross-section or crossroads of time and history in which referees and coaches and players are all coming together, and it's the love of the game that has brought us there. I think instead of repair, I like the word reminding all of us, that we're all doing our part to make this the greatest game on on the planet at the NBA level. Our athletes are the best athletes, but they're also the best people from top to bottom. Our coaches are the best coaches, but they're also the best people from top to bottom. And I'd like to think, and I know for a fact, that our NBA referees are not only the best referees, but they're also the best people. And when you combine that and can remind people that we're all just doing our part with the best efforts that we can, and that it's okay to disagree about how some of those intersections take place. But what is important to remember is how to disagree. How can we disagree and say, I disagree in this way without being condescending, without being degrading. And that's both on both sides. How do we claim our work as referees and say it's good work without being patronizing or without talking down to players or coaches? And I think that to remind ourselves that all of us have a stake in making the game the greatest game on earth and how do we do that from a relational standpoint is a good reminder that we have the best people involved here. Let's don't go down this path when there are many alternate paths that still allow us to disagree professionally and and give different perspectives without having to harm either the game or the other people involved. And I think that we did a, a, I really enjoyed those meetings moving forward. I think it's an important reminder for me as, as one of the leaders of our management team, um, that we can do a better job in training communication in sharing how to interact with coaches and players in a way that both allows you to give your perspective, but also be open to the fact that yes, lo and behold, I may be wrong on this call. I think that that balance while you're still in charge of running the game, is an important one to continually seek out, knowing that at any given time we would all like to do a little better, players, coaches, and referees, in how we relate to others. I much suspect that that's not much different than most families and or much of other working situations that I'm not involved in.
0: Right. So with the players having to live in social media and then now with the game having to live on social media, and you can actually now read just – the i guess the avalanche of fan reactions in real time looking at videos getting upset is there any way that the league needs to or wants to try to improve i guess pr wise on just calls or last two minute reports or the way they they present the calls i know a pet peeve of mine as a fan is when the announcers, it can be the local announcers on a regional broadcast, or it can be Jeff Van Gundy and Mark Jackson on the national broadcast, who when we're watching a replay of a call, like, they just keep harping on something. And again, I'm like, I feel like this is stoking fan anger where it seems like they could have a better understanding or explain better, even, you know, like when you're talking about the mechanics, explain, like, why this guy called this call where he is one of the things that i guess again as a fan just makes me angry is or just you know slightly annoyed is that we see a call and then they just seem to harp on the call and not being like well this is why it was called or even worse the commentators have the rule incorrect and then they're complaining and complaining
1: you know i do think i think we can do a better job of getting out corrections on especially on rules I think that that's, you know, we never want to get involved in in opinion, but if, if there are rules involved, then we want to make sure that the fans have the proper rule at stake. And in many cases, you know, some bad information does get put out there. Our announcers overall do a really good job of informing our fans of the game. And yeah, home announcers you know, they're paid by the teams and they have a vested interest. They see that team 82 games while seeing their opponents much less, obviously. And I think that our fans deserve passionate announcers in the home venue? Would we like for them to be more educated? And and because, I once again, I think that we have the best people in play there. You know, no one's doing these kinds of things in any kind of malicious way. I, I truly believe that. That being said, it is incumbent upon us to put out good information, include media outlets when we have the opportunity. Most of our, you know, our POE tapes, our points of education tapes, that get sent to teams and referees end up out faced to on NBA.com. So we are trying to do a better job of sort of navigating this brave new world in which we get out. I know we have an Instagram page that that we're exploring using more extensively um, so that young people who use these different avenues of getting their information, we can give good information to them. You know, And I think that um, mechanics and things like that, it, it is important that we have an understanding that referees don't just watch the game like they're watching it on, on television. And I think, you know, one of the jokes I use a lot that I think has a good metaphorical meaning is that if you buy a camera, you're a photographer. If you buy a piano, you just bought a piano. There seems to be some understanding that you're not a pianist until you put in hours and hours and hours of of training and learning on that. And I think for refereeing it's important to remember that having two eyes doesn't make you a trained nuanced professional the way the the countless years and hours our referees have put in prior to getting to us. And I think that from that standpoint um we can do a better job of getting that information out um, you know we we have taken an approach that we want to step with with good knowledge about how to go about it. We've all seen people who have misused social media and we want to make sure that that we don't add to the to the layers of of the misuse of social media and we don't want to get involved in um matters of opinion. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, we don't think that that has any real bearing or any real fruit on informing our fans, obviously in a game that moves fast by strong, big, quick, fast athletes. There's always going to be some, some areas in the middle in which our trained professional uh, nuance uh, informs us better than those that are not trained in that way. But I think that that's true of most professions. I can listen to a podcast and think, wow, wouldn't it have been nice to have done that differently? But until I do my own podcast, it's really hard to know how difficult it is to ask good questions, and you know, and and so the people such as yourself that are doing that really do have a better understanding of what makes for good content. It's no different for referees. By and large, we do our jobs very, very well, albeit sometimes imperfect, with with some imperfections. And we're always going to work on those imperfections. We're always going to own those imperfections. The last two minutes report that you've mentioned is a good example. You know, if we put out a last two minute report that is 90 and I'm just using an example, but that is 98% correct. The headline is still NBA admits they missed call with 22 seconds zone right. game when there might have been 72 decisions in that last two minutes that we nailed. And we understand that that's part of our gig and that, that, you know, we're never going to get away from that. No one's going to report referees did excellent job in the last two minutes, uh, except for two, um, mistakes. And, you know, that's not a headline. Right. <laughs> that's, that's not what grabs anyone. And so that's okay. I would like us on our end to get out and get that message out that uh, overwhelmingly in the last two minutes of games, our staff rises to the occasion. The statistics, you know, bear that out. And yes, there's always going to be a call that, unfortunately, um, gives contrary information to that. That we would have liked to have done better. Uh, but I would, I would sort of offer up that I don't think there's any difference for coaches or, or players in that regard. That they too can go back and look at the last impactful moments of games and wish or um, come to a conclusion that there might have been better choices involved. Unfortunately, referees live with that, and they don't do so lightly. Missed calls at the end of games weigh on our officiating staff heavily. They like to be good at their work. They want to serve our players and our coaches to the best of the abilities and to the best that the game calls for. Uh, unfortunately, that's not always the case, and that leads to many sleepless nights for referees, or some sleepless nights for referees, I should say.
0: Right. So. Moving to some of the rule changes that the league ha- has undergone recently, that I think were really good r- rule changes. Again, just as a fan, because a lot of times when fans are upset at the referees, it turns out they're upset at the rules. Like the rules, correct? Sure. And they're like, oh, well, that's a stupid rule, you know. But they're st- they're st- they still seem to d- d- direct that anger. So. The NBA changed the rule, like the, the rip through rule, that James Harden and Kevin sure. Durant and others got really good at. And again, as a fan, that, that I felt like that was that was a great job by the league to address something where players had developed a, a trick that, by the letter of the law, that was that was a, a three shot foul. And then last season, they changed the rule that I guess on jump shooters. And again, forgive me for using the if I use the terminology uh, incorrectly. But the sure. if you don't on a jump shot, a lot of this happened when a ball handler would would get a screen, a big man would show, and then the, the ball handler would lean into that defender, get a bump, and then shoot a jumper. And a lot of guys had gotten really good sure. at that, like Chris Paul and other guys are getting three shot fouls off of this. And and the league decided that isn't worth that, so you change the rule to, um, if they haven't gathered with what. Well, Or they haven't started the upward motion of the jump shot, it wasn't continuation. And I think that rule last year, I think, was a bit confusing. I know, especially going to local announcing teams, I think they were very confused. Is the rule that if it's a jump shot, there's no continuation, but if they're moving towards the basket. Sorry, say that again.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's nuanced. I mean, obviously, if it's a jump shot, we can have continuation. What we were finding, and I I, I may be in the minority here, but I love it when players work at their craft so much that they force us to work at our craft. Mm -hmm. And we used to use the adage that if you didn't dribble again, that it was continuation. But we were finding far too many examples of someone getting bumped on, let's say, a down dribble. So they've already put their last dribble down, but they get bumped while the ball is on the way up. And in real time, without being a trained eye, that looks like continuation. But when we start looking into our rule book and seeing Mm -hmm. that how can you have continuation when the ball is on the ground on the dribble, it most certainly has not been gathered yet if we're going to take a shot inside the lower defensive box. And so from that standpoint, we had to start getting better at seeing how our rule book, the words of our rule book, actually were impacting the play at hand out on the floor. And players had gotten so good at, at using various Um, methods to get to the free throw line that we realized in many instances what was happening on the floor did not mirror up with the language of our rule book. And if we have upward shooting motion in our rule book, then we had to do a better job of understanding what that meant in real time, you know? And so if we have gather in our rule book for a drive, we had to do a better job of defining what a drive was up against what a jump shot is because you know is someone who goes off one foot driving if they're shooting a 60 footer at the end of a quarter Mm -hmm. is that a drive because they went off one foot as opposed to it being a jump shot from that distance. And so all of those things led to the rule changes that you're discussing. And when we start talking about these levels of tolerance, Keith, what we have to do is, is that we have to understand that referees, there's a visual syntax to our work that, so years ago we had the the same foot to same foot hop, hop travel that Paul Pierce made very popular. So if he wanted to get through two defenders, he would go off his right foot in step one and land on his right foot for step two and then go through that way. And we realized that hopping, you know, the competition committee made a decision that hopping shouldn't be a part of basketball. Well, that took our referees a little while to to visually create that language of how to see that play. Because prior to that, it was just viewed as two steps. Now we had to see it in a different way, and it has a visual rhythm to it. And so when we first did the rip through, we realized that you can't be shooting if first contact, you're ripping the ball from side to side. And so from that standpoint, it took our referees some time to get to where they were good at seeing that. And last year with the first opportunity to to be a part of this rule. I do think that that there were some plays that we could have adjudicated more correctly. That being said, we were still really good at it. And um, the few times that that our announcers didn't know the differences between the rules, i.e. some of these bumps and different things. So for example, here's one that got a lot of press. If you jump sideways, can that be a defensive foul if the offensive player jumps sideways? The answer is both yes and no. And the trained professional is trained to understand the difference between why it is a foul and why it is not a foul. So in this case, we heard a lot about if if I pump fake someone up in the air and jump sideways, why is it sometimes a foul and not others? And here's the reason. If I jump side, if I get you pumped up in the pump faked in the air and you jump towards me and you're going to hit me regardless of whether I jump to the side or not. You're going to catch part of my shoulder. And all I do is jump sideways slightly to ensure that. Then it's still a defensive foul. You gave up legal guarding position. But if I jump on the pump fake and I'm clearly going to miss you to the side and I have to jump so far to the side to create that contact, then it's a no call or an offensive foul, depending on the severity of the contact. But when announcers announce that they say things through along these lines, Oh, I just saw that last week and that was a no call. Right. Or I just saw that wet last week and it was a call. And the only similarity between the two plays is that the offensive player sort of jumped to the side a little. But the actual rule that NBA referees have to live under. Adds more qualifiers to that decision, and it's not as simple as just being able to announce that the person jumped sideways. There's more to it than that.
0: Can I interject? And so
1: I think that that's a good example.
0: Well, sure. Oh, I, I want. I just wanted. To, I wanted to specify this because this is something I think a lot of people, like airborne defenders on pump fakes. I think there's a lot of questions, and I have questions. Uh, last year in the playoffs. The the final um, the thunder when the thunder lost to the jazz it came down to Paul George pump faking this was a famous you know so Gobert right. is in the air again to, to my to my untrained eye uh, I thought it was a foul even when watching the replay even when seeing that the last two minute report says it's not a foul so it, Gobert is, is moving away from his basket and he's he's airborne That's right. but because the, the ruling is. He's allowed to continue traveling away from his basket in the air as long as he's not in the path of Paul George. Can That's I say exactly that exactly right. And okay. you, yeah, you
1: said it very correctly. And so what happens on that play is that Gobert jumps on the pump fake, and we, we are able to, through many different angles of our replay center and everything else, get many uh, angles that don't show, but do inform our L2M, our last two-minute report. And there's clearly an angle that shows that that Rudy is going to miss him if not for that side movement and so from that standpoint, that's a good example of one in which the nuance of what we have been instructed to call is an important one, and why are we instructed to call it that way? Because we have principles in our rule book that state you are allowed to jump vertically as a defender or you're allowed to jump to the side. So for example, because we've, we've, um, done a better job at closeouts and penalizing closeouts, coaches have started to teach that while you used to contest with your arm through the middle of the arms, right? You would close out and you would put a hand up through the face as the person shot, not to hit them, of course, but to, to distract and whatnot, because the closeout rule now has the potential to be a flagrant foul what many coaches started to do was coach that our closeouts are outside shoulder to shooting arm shoulder so that you are going to miss them as you close out so that you don't put yourself in jeopardy of coming up under that person's foot and getting a flag or foul penalty one called against you. And so we have a lot more training that defenders are running to the outside to contest on these closeout jump shots. We can't then turn around and penalize a defender if he's clearly going to meet, miss the jump shooter because the jump shooter moves to his right. But if that defender is moving forward and they have given up their principles of verticality and they are going to hit that jump shooter, then we can't deny that as as part of our rule book either. And that play alone shows the expertise of our officials. It right. shows how much work it takes to get to those levels of nuance, up against just watching it like we watch it on TV and say there's contact, and that's not ridiculing or, or dismissing the passion that people do, uh, or have for the game. It does say though that our our referees have really worked hard to mine down and get these plays called correctly as our rule book is written.
0: All right. Well, as you guys are writing this rule book last section, I want to, I want to run by quickly, uh, just get your brief responses to, uh, what would be the drawback if we changed a couple of these rules? This is just me as a basketball fan, uh, thinking I love the NBA, but man, if we could tweak these couple things, I think I I, I would like it more because like last year, again, there was other rules, not specifically related to foul calls that were done to speed up the pace of the game. Like they, they changed the timeout structure. And so, uh, I think what would be the problem or what would be potential problems with allowing teams to play advantage on shot clock violations, where if it's clear a change of possession has occurred or the defense has secured the ball to not blow the the play dead, like could the referees just play advantage on shot clock violations? That way we would have more, you know, faster pace of play, more transition opportunities.
1: So if the ball misses the, the, if the horn goes off while the ball is in the middle of the air, yes, and it doesn't hit the rim, okay. Well, I can give you some disadvantages. I will say this though, Keith. To start off with, any rule changes that take place do not take place from a referee's standpoint. Sure. Referees adjudicate the rules that have been that have been determined by our competition committee, which has both owners and players and general managers and coaches on it. It has two current referees on it that are non-voting members. They are just there to give perspective on the referees, as well as me as the, you know, VP of whatever my title is of officiating. (laughs) And, you know, I'm there to give those perspectives, but that, that our coaches, our players, our general managers, and our owners are the ones who recommend rules changes Our owners are the ones who vote on that. It goes to the Board of Governors. Referees then do their best to execute and adjudicate those rules. And so from that standpoint, I would say that one of the big issues um, that you just mentioned is what do we do then if the person who's about to get the ball and we decide to let it play on fumbles it out of bounds? Or gets the ball, and as they they go to make the pass, it slips out of their hands to out of bounds, and we've had a violation then that was chosen not to be called. And I think that that's one of the big things. You know, you could say the same thing about the take foul at at where someone just barely reaches out to grab someone, and they go on through for an uncontested layup. Right. Why would you call that? You just took away an uncontested layup. Well, if you don't call that grab that they're wanting called as a defensive team, and then that player dribbles the ball off his knee immediately afterward, we're going to be saying, why didn't you call that foul? And so it becomes a no-win situation. Rules gives, give consistency from night to night. And so if we do have a portion of our rule – in the, in the example that you just gave and casebook plays to support it, that if the horn and the new possession are simultaneous or so close together that you can't determine it, you should play off the whistle. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't include the ball in the middle of the air when the horn goes off and then there's no, there's no whistle because at any given time, then we would have to say, okay, it slipped through your hands on that rebound and went out of bounds. We're going to go back and call the violation tonight, but then maybe not on. It just becomes a much more difficult thing for our staff of 65 people to adjudicate on a regular basis consistently. And remember when we're talking about 65 people, we don't have 65 30 year referees. We have a wide range of experience and a wide range of, of people who are learning the craft at different stages of their lives. We have three different positions on any given night, a crew chief, then a referee. And then our, our least, most often our least experienced official is in the umpire position. And when you're talking about, you know, Kenny Maurer in year 33 or 34, and you know, Tyler Ford in year three, that's a wide gap about how to interpret what you just said. The rule when held, Accountable on any given night allows those years of service to be compressed into a consistent effort. We think on a night-to-night basis.
0: See, I'm I'm allowing you guys a little more rope, Monty. I I don't you don't have to yes, hide behind are. the you don't have to hide <laughs> behind the rules. Let's just let them go, man. Yeah, like... the problem with your rope. The, the <laughs> problem
1: with your rope is is it can be made into a noose very quickly. There you go. <laughs> so I'm I'm trying to make sure our referees don't get put in the noose
0: that's fair that's fair no it's also a, a I think I think my least favorite rule that currently exists is the clear path review that's another one just yep. just as far as watching the game like as far as watching the game sure. I feel like as a fan I would rather the officials miss some clear path reviews just call it by judgment just go for the spirit of if it looks like there there's no defender back because stopping the game for these reviews drives me batty and also I don't know if this is the, the rule called correctly Sometimes, right if there's, there's, your
1: team needs it <laughs> right
0: right well so like there's there's times when there's a defender who then doesn't actually commit the foul until the guy has gone past him and then it's clear path and i'm like well all he right. wanted to foul. Well, let him. me cut
1: you off there yes let me let me cut you off there and i won't get into the particulars because it has not been approved all right uh-huh. but clear path is currently being attempted to being simplified,
0: all okay. right. Uh, so
1: your your desire is has been heard, <laughs> and it's no doubt due to this podcast that this is taking place. <laughs> and, uh, but it is currently being reviewed to get to a more simplified version of the rule so that fans and referees and coaches have a better understanding of what constitutes a clear path. I won't get into the particulars of that simplification because I don't know how its final interpretation will, will result, and I don't want to misspeak here publicly. But your, your, your view on that is, is widespread and is part of a larger contingency that that don't disagree with you. And so we're taking a look at that currently and most likely would have some most likely not guaranteed, but most likely we would have some um, new interpretation to share with the 2018, 2019 season.
0: Well, that's, that's very exciting. Well, it just, it seems like when we, cause the idea, if you're wanting to encourage fast breaks and to discourage the fouling, that's where I get confused yeah. on Again, like if you play advantage, like some, I guess, international basketball does sometimes, you know, and those not calling fouls in transition, it also seems confusing or in conflict with that fouling a guy at half court who then tricks the defender, you know, to fouling him and then he shoots a three pointer, which you guys have sure. ruled is not a three pointer. It seems like if that was well, a three point no, foul.
1: Should rule that as you, yeah, we should, and we we've. We've gotten better at that, and there's still room for improvement with that area. But once again, if upward shooting motion takes place and that offensive player has been able to use his his wily wits to get to a good space, then we have to make sure that we're doing a better job of that. And we have done a pretty good job, but there is room for improvement on that play that you just described.
0: Well, the defender is going to, in my mind, not attempt that foul in transition. If it seems like there's a solid chance that Russell Westbrook would get three shots because he got a half he got a half court shot up or something to that effect sure. but um anyway sure. uh to to let you off the hook here um what <laughs> i like that yeah, yeah yeah uh in your in your career um what do you guys do what what do referees do after a big game like what Game seven of the 2016 finals, you, you were refereeing one of the biggest basketball games in the last however many decades. Uh, the game's over. You were standing, you know, a few feet away from LeBron James the block. Then, then what? You just go to you go have dinner? You just How, how, how do you come down from that? Do they give you champagne <laughs> well, you in the referee room? Do you, do you go to the <laughs> dressing not, room? They do
1: not. <laughs> no, they do not. Um, there is a sense of, uh, you know... Um, we were all very prideful of our work that night, and that's not to say it was perfect. But we, the Duke Callahan, Michael Callahan, uh, who we all referred to as Duke, and Danny Crawford, and myself, and Mark Davis was the alternate that night. Um, we were we we all had felt very prideful that we had met the moment of of a wonderful game, and a wonderful game for our league. You know, in terms of the drama it, it produced, and th- that isn't something that you just let go of lightly you're you're very much locked in and in a tunnel there in, in that kind of situation filled with pressure and when you come back from that are, are finished with that there's a there's a, a time frame that it takes um to come down from that um, the four of us uh, afterwards spent some time together in the locker room there quietly um then we started started to process some of 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 that game you know and sharing different portions and or different thoughts about various plays we did end up at dinner with our wives and our you know significant others in some cases children and um and the night went very long that being said my wife has told me without me really understanding it that it took me almost 10 days to come down off that to be <laughs> normal again to to not be sort of locked in on thinking deeply about things. And I don't remember that portion of things. I do remember being, you know, feeling in the day leading up to it. And then even later through the the days afterwards of being very prideful that we did not let the game participants down with poor work. And you're right. It it takes time to, to process that kind of intensity. And I think that that the NBA game consistently provides that kind of intensity, and I think that's why it's the best league in the world. Uh, when you get into those kinds of historical moments, whether it's game sevens or even game sixes or fours in the conference finals or finals themselves, you you do experience a different level of commitment to that intensity. And for our first time playoff officials, they often comment on that, like, You see the intensity on TV, but you don't fully understand it until you experience it. And then, of course, that that gets even more acute as you move further and further into the playoffs and experience those moments. And that's one of the reasons why it takes our officials years to get to that level of training to where they understand how to perform under those conditions. And that's an important part of the maturation process for our staff.
0: Well, if no one else tells you, just let me say, uh, or I'll say, you guys did a great job of not calling goaltending on the block. So, I mean, good work.
1: Well, and <laughs> we worked hard, and, and, and that's where training comes in, quite frankly, that you can perform without the noise on the outside influencing your decisions and um it was a it, it was a you know obviously a seminal play in the in the league's history and i too am glad that we did not mess
0: it up <laughs> <laughs> well M- money thank so. you so much uh for spending so much time with me i will uh i will email you all the rest of my rules recommendations so you can pass them along to all the
1: right. <laughs> i most certainly will <laughs> special parties and
0: again thanks a bunch uh hopefully you can come back on sometime we'll t- we can talk more about you and your uh Your Numerous Hobbies, which I've been reading about in the last couple of days.
1: Well, I appreciate it. It's been a joy for me and I'm glad that the happenstance of life, us meeting on the bus, could lead us here today. Don't hesitate to reach back out if I can help you, Keith.
0: Will do, thanks. All right, hopefully that was enjoyable for you. It was a blast for me. I do have regrets, just about things I didn't get to. I kind of wanted to uh, ask him, you know, what rule changes he would like to see, if he cares. I know he, he talks about serving the game, but surely he has opinions on there's got to be some rules that they could fix that would, you know, make it easier for referees. I want to know kind of what his least favorite rules are, if he has favorite calls to make. Like when I was refing high school basketball, I love calling 10 seconds. 10 seconds, I was always cheering for the defense. Um, confession. but That's the kind of thing I didn't say to him. Also, you need to Google him to read some of the other longer interviews he's done. The guy has made a gigantic quilt that took him several years while he was refing. He's into antique photography. He's learning the trumpet a la Duke Silver. He's an interesting guy with a lot of interests. So hopefully I'll have him back on and he can tell me um, why we still have fouling out. Why is fouling out still a thing? Anyway, if you enjoyed the episode, if you want to support our show, you can do that at patreon.com slash fast break breakfast in addition to helping the show out that gives you access to exclusive bonus content available only there so again patreon.com slash fast breakfast you can follow us on instagram on facebook and follow me on twitter at fast break break all right you guys are the best thanks for listening and remember breakfast is the most important thing